You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our Wednesday release of the podcast where I'm talking about Bitcoin. On today's show, we bring back by popular demand, Dr. Adam Back, who's the CEO and founder of Blockstream. And we also have Plan B, who's the creator of the stock to flow model. On the show, we talk about the broader macro implications of Bitcoin reaching a market cap in excess of a trillion dollars, but still having market corrections of $500 billion. We talk about Chinese mining news. We talk about energy concerns and highlights. Additionally, we talk about the derivatives market and how it had an impact on the recent sell-off. So if you're looking for a good update from two of the smartest guys in the space, hang on tight because here we go. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like we said in the introduction, I'm here with Adam Back and Plan B. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So where I want to start this off, um, I've done a lot of thinking as this price has just gotten punished over the last uh, two months, month and a half or whatever it is. Um, And one of the things at the top of the list is just systematic risk. A few months back, we saw Wall Street bets do the whole GME thing. And it had, you know, just a small kind of pittance of a market cap, but the implications of that were massive. So you had Melvin Capital, the Citadel had to come up with $2 billion. You had 0.72 asset management. Uh, All of them were just, you know, it it created a mess in the financial markets. Uh, You saw the broader markets selling off through some of this. And, you know, it was only a $6 billion loss all around, but the implications of what you saw that this created in the overall market was, was kind of crazy. Um, so when I think about Bitcoin having a market cap, uh, it was well over a trillion dollars and it has a 50% drop in price. And so we're talking $500 billion and that's just Bitcoin alone. What in the world does this mean long term when we uh, you know, think about the implications of the price potentially being higher, maybe a Bitcoin price of 100000 What would that mean for systematic risk? At what point is Bitcoin potentially wagging the tail of the regular market and how they're going to have to respond with further liquidity? Is this something you guys have given much thought to? Well, I think the uh, Bitcoin market is 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 um has some some very high volatility and it's just part of the market and i find i find it really funny that we all knew at the beginning of the bull market that we would not go up in a straight line and that there would be multiple minus 35 or minus 50 percent drops uh along the way like it did in the in, in the 2017 and 2013 bull run so now we have one our first minus 35% dip uh, month to month. And it feels like this is new and, and upsetting everything and, and changing everything, but it's not. It, it, it's a, at least in my opinion, it's just a normal thing that that is present in a, a, a market like Bitcoin that has also the returns that, that go with those high volatility. Um, and we, we should expect those drops and not be afraid of them, make use of them. And, um, you know, I, 
psychology is different because it, it feels like Bitcoin is dead every time. Mm-hmm. But you know there will be another minus 50%, minus 50% drop and a minus 35% drop. So I don't think, structure, think uh, that structurally uh, anything has changed. It's it's just part of the buildup, char- part of the the growth of this market, and uh, part of the charm of this market as well. Because you cannot have two hundred percent annualized returns without volatility. And to be honest, minus thirty five percent versus a plus two hundred percent annualized return is still a bargain deal. Yeah, but I guess where I'm getting at it is. Once we achieve a certain market cap in size, it's almost like uh, Bitcoin starts to become this thing that's going to drive central banking policy because it's so substantially large and it has so much volatility. Because I don't think, you know, if we go to, let's just say the market cap goes to something like five trillion and it's starting to become competitive with gold. I still think the volatility is going to be there. I don't think the volatility is going to wane at that point. I think you're you're still going to have aggressive volatility. And if true, and and the market cap would be something of that magnitude, doesn't this create a situation where central bankers are now having to respond because of the uh, the impairment that such volatility would cause to the to the overall market participants? You see where yeah, I'm going maybe. with that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I agree that volatility will not go away. It will stay here. It's part of what Bitcoin is. And and let's not forget that um, the stock market and especially the bond markets and, and a lot of other markets are less volatile because of the, the central bank, right? Mm-hmm. They step in, they rescue it, and that's they, they take out the volatility. And with it, they take out the returns. So, so Bitcoin feels like the only place in the world where capitalism or normal market behavior is still allowed. And yeah, I, I, there will be a point when when the market steps in, but it doesn't feel like this is this is now. It doesn't feel like yeah. the central bank will, will will rescue Bitcoin, right? Yeah, no, and I completely agree with that. I'm, I guess I'm just looking at um, the size when we hit a trillion and, and, you, and it's dropped 50%, and you look at it just in the nominal terms of how much capital just disappeared and you think about all right so the people that that had these positions and the implications of their counterparty risk of their other positions when does that start to become a factor that that's going to have a much broader uh impact to the market is is kind of my concern as as i'm looking at this and then how's that more importantly how is that going to be received Right. How's yeah, the rest of the market going to think about that? I think that will be a much higher at a much higher market cap than one trillion. I think one trillion is still very very small mm-hmm. compared to the gold market, the bond market, stock markets. It's 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 near to nothing. Uh, so so yeah, we'll we'll have to grow, I guess, beyond the ten ten trillion dollar mark to yeah really make a dent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw an interesting statistic. One of the uh, big brand name kind of fund manager who has been recently interested in Bitcoin made the comment that, you know, in the 2017 run up and then the price falling back in 2018, 2019, that the on-chain data was suggesting that 86% of people 
uh, just held right through it. <laughs> they didn't sell any yes. coins. Yes. Yes. Um, this was Stan Drunkenmiller's uh, comment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, you'd think, well, he, he was saying he was surprised by that, right? But I think, um, you know, people have a reason to fear being out of market. So, you know, before you know, going back a few years, I had the come to the realization, maybe 2014, something like that, that it wasn't that good an idea to day trade this thing, you know, to try and think, oh, I'll sell some now, I'll buy it back later, because basically looking at something very high volatile, highly volatile, more so at that time, and plus or minus on some kind of exponential part of an S-curve, and otherwise a random variable. So if you sell and buy back, this, the odds are stacked against you. And another, another statistic which highlights this, that if, if you eliminate the 12 single-day largest gains in a year, Bitcoin loses money year on year. So your biggest risk is being out of market for any of those 12 days. And so you know, simply buying more when it goes down, if you can afford that, or just hold, you know, put excess income if you, if you have a job into it, that tends to work out very well over a long period of time. And certainly for myself, uh, from uh, 2017, I, I had come to the heuristic of buying any time the price dropped by at least 20%. Below that, I didn't consider a dip. And so I bought my first post-20,000 at 16,000 and just kept kept buying down to uh, 3,500. And I was kind of uh, low on cash at that point. But, uh, you know, obviously, if you're still holding those today, that, that looks pretty good, right? So I think the other thing is the, you know, you're talking about if as the market gets bigger, how, how will it adapt to this? And I think the way it adapts is kind of biological, evolutionary, that people who can't handle it leave. They leave, you know, they put money in, the price drops, they sell at a loss, they panic sell. Maybe they learn not to do that in future when they see it come back. Or maybe they don't, maybe they leave. But in any case, the, the coins just organically change hands to people who are inclined to hold them or who are better at managing risk, you know, if they're, you know, doing leverage or selling a bit and buying back. Another rule of thumb I use is if you are inclined to day trade, at least restrict yourself to 10% of coins. That way, if it, if it all comes horribly unstuck, you'll still have 90% of the coins cold stored. So I think a lot of what happened in the last month is down to uh, over leverage um, and that we can talk about, but it, it creeps up on people faster than they think. So as, as Bitcoin gets bigger, uh, you know, higher market cap, I do wonder if you would start to see more value investors. I mean, I tend to view it as a value investor, so the price falls and try to buy more. Um, and you see that with stocks, right? There are analysts who are looking at it and saying, well, this is overweight or underweight based on you know, quarterly reports, expectations. And if it falls a bit, they will start to buy it with a fund or something, right? And so we might see some of that coming into Bitcoin in the longer term. If, you know, as more people gain confidence in the longer term trajectory, the long term viewpoint, the, you know, the volatilities normal, it's fine, uh, it's necessary even, right? Otherwise, the price would already be much higher. You know, Adam, you're hitting on a point that I think is so vital for people that are maybe getting into this for the first time is they don't understand the, the conviction 
that's associated with people who hold a majority of the coins. It's not like the that you have these fringe people that have a small position size that have this insane level of conviction. It's the people that have enormous stakes in it that have this level of conviction that as the price goes down 50%, they didn't even think about selling it. In fact, they were doing everything that they could to buy more. And so when we if if you look at the amount of coins that have been issued into the through the protocol and you take a percentage of that um of those coins, what percent of it is held by people with this deep, ridiculous conviction that are deep in the money and really aren't even phased by a 50% drop, um, I would I would argue that that number is really high, like 80% or, or something of that magnitude. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is it doesn't have to even be the natural, you know, makeup of the average investor it's just that those people are the survivors <laughs> because <clears throat> if you don't take that attitude you tend to get washed out right or or you you know you panic you would you would be inclined to sell in a dip or not buy in the first place because you're worried about volatility or something so the people that either start out with this attitude or develop it over time i think most people develop it over time um i think it basically you're Investment portfolio denomination changes. That's, that's that's been my view for a long time now. Yeah, that I want to increase the number of coins I have, and if the price is plus or minus fifty percent, I don't even account for it. Like you know, one bitcoin is one bitcoin. The question is, how do I get more bitcoin without increasing risk that I might lose some of the bitcoin I have got? And so that's where the you know leverage trading gets potentially dangerous if you overdo it because it can. Uh, there's another saying, which is uh, leverage can't uh, make a bad investment good, but it can make a good investment bad, which is to say that you have something you long-term want to buy and hold, but if you over-leverage a price pullback that you would like to buy, kind of forces a sale to protect, you know, so that liquidation is partial or not full or something. Because if you, if you certainly, if you, uh, you know, some, some people are doing quite high leverage and that can like completely liquidate. Uh, portfolio, basically, or, or whatever's on exchange. Yeah, maybe to add on uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, I totally agree with uh, um, the, per- the point you made earlier about the holders uh, with with vision and 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 great con- conviction. They um, they're the great holders. They are the holders you like to see in Bitcoin. And, and it's funny, I, I tweeted that the other day and got a lot of uh, hate for that, that uh, people who can, who cannot afford or cannot stand the volatility, um, they, yeah, they, they shouldn't be there. You know, they, they, uh, they shouldn't um, position themselves into a, uh, yeah, into a position that, that they can be shaken out uh, against their will or, and, and we all know those, those people that let's, uh, look at last two months the, when the price was uh, 57,000, 60,000. I know personally a lot of people who entered the market but who I could tell um, couldn't stand the, the minus 35, minus 50% drops. And and yeah, well, so when it happened, they, they chickened out the, the within a month, within two months. And that was really a lot of people. I, I from, from on-chain, I guessed... Um, about $20 billion um, was lost by people who bought the, the month before. 
So that 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 shows us that I guess the people with vision, the really long-term holders, they were okay until last month, uh, and I would say March and April, um, because in those months we, we got so much people with high leverage, I guess, with uh, no vision uh, that did not really understand Bitcoin, or at least not the the low time preference that goes with it, that should go with it, and they sold. It, 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 I have never seen it on chain, by the way, in any other uh, month or year. So the 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 holders that bought last two months are the weakest holders ever uh, that couldn't couldn't stand the volatility. And uh, yeah, it's it. I agree. It's the volatility is part of the market. It's it's part of what what makes Bitcoin great. And if if yeah, if you can't handle it, you you will hurt yourself. So. Um, well, and here's, Be careful. here's the other thing on top of that is how many people did you talk to two months ago that said, I'm, I'm going to wait till I get a, a better buying opportunity because it's just so overheated. I'll buy it at when, when there's the next dip. Well, now here's the dip <laughs> and you know exactly what they're doing is they're not buying because they're saying, well, it's probably the, the top happened and now it's going to keep going lower and they'll, they'll just never get off their hands. And so what we're really talking about here, at least in my opinion, is what is the advice to somebody who wants to own Bitcoin, but can't, is just emotionally psyching themselves out. And, you know, the only, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but the only conclusion that I have come to is that people need to dollar cost average. They need to start off with smaller position sizes so that you know, this insane volatility that you just naturally experience with Bitcoin isn't really a factor if it's, you know, a 1% or 2% position in your portfolio. It's not a big deal. Um, and so if you're slowly just doing dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin over a year's period of time, like if you've been buying it slowly every month for the last year, you're way up, right? Even through this 50% drop that just happened. Um but I think most people just want to do their their full position size all at once, and they want to get that perfect price, or they want to get a a deal, and that's the thing that that is it, it presents a really tough situation for people to be able to handle emotionally, especially if they don't have the knowledge or the conviction behind what's all going on behind the scenes with the protocol. Yeah, I um. Not to give any financial advice, of course, but um, in my opinion, the institutional investor mindset is great also for retail. And that is, if you decide upon vision and strategic analysis, uh, some, some longer term thing that you want an exposure in a asset, say it's Bitcoin, then by all means, uh, acquire that, that exposure, acquire that position regardless of the price. Yes, dollar cost averaging, great, great way. Uh, or do it small, say, okay, I want a position. I want to be part of Bitcoin because I like the vision. I, I like where it's going in five or 10 years. And then you buy a really small stake uh, um, for one person that's $1,000, for another that's a million, but something that you're happy to lose, that, that you can afford to lose. Uh, and then don't look back. Uh, give, yourself, give yourself the time to at least hold it for four years because mm -hmm. nobody who held Bitcoin for four years had uh, any loss at all. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would, if, if you decided 
to make to take a position to, to that you you want to have exposure because you read the Bitcoin standard and the white paper and did your research, by all means, don't look at the price. It doesn't matter. Just get the position. And really, if, if Bitcoin goes 5x or 10x, what does it matter if you bought for, for 30,000 or 60,000? It doesn't matter. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So I want to just throw this out there because I think a lot of people don't understand necessarily how the derivatives market works. Um, at least, you know, are maybe people that are new to the space. And what we've seen over the last month and a half uh, was just a cascading event of selling that was induced by people that had long positions, which is kind of ironic when you take a step back and you think about it is these people that were selling were the ones that had an opinion that Bitcoin's going way higher. And, and they're the ones that supplied a, uh, a, a large portion of the sell-off that happened. So I'm going to throw it over to you, Plan B, to kind of explain simply for people uh, what causes this and what does it mean right now as, you're, as we're going through a consolidation as well? Yes. So derivatives markets are a uh, phenomenon that is 
that is associated with with uh, mature markets. So uh, only a spot market. It's it. Uh, yeah, it's not much. So you need you need futures markets, option markets, uh, swap markets. Uh, to and what those derivatives markets do is they divide the risk return profiles that are available in the spot market um, into two different risk return or, or more different risk return packages. So, for example, with futures, you can do leverage on the one hand, and there were a lot of le- leverage longs of, of people that, that thought Bitcoin would uh, would go to 100,000 or more this month or next month. Um, and you can do that with futures. And then there's the other side of the trade of people that say, well, I can provide you that leverage for a certain 30% or even 40% annualized return. Uh, and we were laughing about that the other the other day at the podcast uh, with the three of us. Mm-hmm. Like, how can it be that there's 30%, 40% um, Bitcoin neutral uh, returns available in, in dollar terms? Uh, well, that was because there's a lot of people um, that wanted to go leverage longs, uh, long positions. Um, so, yeah, um, and, and and that of course uh, can go wrong. Uh, it's very interesting to see the dynamics of uh, that spread of the thirty percent being totally eliminated right now. It's zero and uh, almost uh, in backwardation the future markets. But then you see in the option markets, you see the volatility coming back. So those are very attractive right now. Uh, option prices are based on volatility and are another derivative that that split the market in two parties, two or more parties. People don't want to bet um, that Bitcoin goes up or down, but don't want to have the other side of the trade. And the um, the option providers, sellers that uh, that take the premium and uh, uh, yeah, make a very calculated bet. So, so I think derivatives markets are, are great as long as people that uh, play on those markets know what they're doing. And obviously, in a maturing market like Bitcoin, I guess the leverage is a problem uh, at the moment because yeah, a hundred x leverage is is like a certain loss. If, you, if I mean. If, if, if you go 1% into the wrong direction, you're wiped out and, and the, pers- the chance, the odds of, of being wrong are 99.99%. So it's a certain win for the exchanges that provide 100x uh, leverage. And it's a certain win for um, the people, yeah, who, who provide the other side of the trade. And I think that went horribly wrong last, uh, last month. Now, where we're at right now with the price being low and you have a ton of short sellers that are now entering into the market and taking their positions. And it's almost like you see the exact opposite of what we saw a month and a half ago with everybody going long. Now you have a a pile of people going short, but these derivative products are not controlled. Like like the underlying price is going to do what it does. And then the derivatives are going to react based on that underlying price. And so, um, you know, when people see these big, massive green bars that explode up in what feels like minutes, and they're wondering, where did all these buyers come from? And the buyers came from the people that had an opinion that Bitcoin was going lower, and they've, they basically got margin called, and they become forced buyers at that point. So 
right now, as we're seeing this price consolidation, are you seeing that plan B with the uh, short sellers stepping into the into the market at scale that could potentially be the ones that provide the uh, the the big green bars if the underlying starts to starts to move upward? Yeah, I I, um, I more see I, I see more the um, liquidation of the leverage longs. Um, more than the uh, buildup of a leverage shorts uh, position, but um, I'm sure there will be leverage shorts uh, at the moment, and and yeah, they will be uh, liquidated too <laughs> when we go up, as you say. Yeah, and and it's because exactly what Adam said, um, because the money will go to the uh, the strongest hands and and not to the gamblers that that hit the 10x or 100x uh, leverage uh, button, because uh, in asset like Bitcoin. Um, to 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 trade that with leverage is is as close to to stupidity as 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 one can come. And, and <laughs> uh, so you can see, I I personally joke about it with friends, uh, especially uh, the institutional investor friends. It's like a tax on stupidity. Um, so yeah, it, it will. So the, the the good news then is that a lot of that money flows into the market to the, to the strong hands. It sounds horrible when I say that, but that's just how it uh, how it goes, right? All those people lose their money, especially the hundred X traders, mm-hmm. and and that money will be available for the other side of the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and will be a nice step up for another bull bull run or or, or leg up, if you will. So yeah, it's I guess it's part of a ferociously capitalistic market without much interference of the governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I sort of like it to see this market in, in its pro- yeah, primitive and, and, and most pure form uh, uh, there is. Yeah, I think many would even say that it's, it's extremely healthy that this is allowed to happen. So uh, just for some numbers here on all the exchanges, the open interest for futures, futures uh, only, was around uh, $20 billion uh, prior to like at the beginning of May. And now you're down to 11 billion. So it's almost been cut in half the amount of futures open interest that's out there. Um, Adam, I'm curious if you have any uh, thoughts on on some of the, these ideas with the derivatives. Yeah, I mean, it's curious that probably, you know, people think that that the market fall is driven by uh, panic sellers. So people who are trying to hold on to dollar value who didn't have to sell versus forced sellers. People who actually were, you know, just desperately trying to accumulate more Bitcoin, but pushed it too hard on the leverage. And I'm thinking it may be more the latter than the former. So certainly some people will instinctively sell to preserve some dollar value. Maybe they'll think, uh, this is too much for me, and they'll leave, or they'll hope to time it and buy back later, which is also dangerous, right? It can turn around in a in a heartbeat too. Um, so certainly that you know that statistic about the twenty billion down to eleven billion on I presume that's the perpetual future open interest is telling, and you know just to for some illustration of how. The perpetual future is a kind of quadratic instrument. Like, you know, if you're if you're trying to buy Bitcoin, more Bitcoin using Bitcoin, you've got a risk from the price falling when you're hoping it's going to go up, but you've got another compounding risk that makes it a squared loss, which is that 
the value of the collateral, either Bitcoin, is also falling. So you've got, you know, so basically, if you if you had 100 Bitcoins or 100 milli Bitcoins, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin, same thing, just the ratio, right? So 100 units, and you go two times long, and a price starts at 50,000, by the time the price falls to 33,000, which is only a 33% fall, you'd be 100% liquidated on that position, right? So you think, well, two times, and if you look at the upside, it's it's not as as great as you think because you make a profit on the price increase, right? Mm-hmm. And then you want to convert that price increase into Bitcoin, and then you have to divide it by a new higher price. So the asymmetry is uh, kind of not in your favor. And it's not that shorting is particularly safer. I mean, shorting Bitcoin is probably even more dangerous, if anything, because you have the same quadratic kind of effects in a way the the uh you know if if you are shorting with dollars um then your dollars are shrinking in relation to bitcoin so you have the quadratic effect so i think actually most of the short interest in the market is not really short it's the long short you know it's it's a bitcoin neutral way to collect yield to lend money to people who are trying to go long uh, as plan b was just saying and so I think most of the market is made up, most of the short market is made up by that. So it's not actually exposed. And that is stable because, you know, your, your bet in a price will go down, but, but the collat- if it goes up, the collateral increases and vice versa. So that's completely stable and doesn't actually won't get liquidated, generally speaking, in, you know, a 10x increase or a 10x pullback. It's pretty stable. Um, so go ahead. Do you think that um, because this, this derivatives market was not mature during the last bull run. Now we're seeing all sorts like these perpetual futures contracts that you're talking about. This is something that's very unique to Bitcoin and the crypto economy that doesn't exist in uh, your normal traditional markets. And you're able to do these perpetual uh, futures contracts because of of the 24 seven immediate clearing aspects that are inherently uh, part of this, you know, this type of asset. And I guess my question is this, are we seeing the price perform differently where there's a little bit less volatility in the momentum of the, of the price action with systematic cascades, either up or down that kind of happen, uh, more sporadically. Is that, is that what's going to pop out of this derivatives, these all these derivatives that are there now? Or do you think that that's just kind of what we've seen in the past year? Because to me, it seems like the price was way less volatile uh, until we got just this uh, super saturated uh, long position. And then it was just this massive cascade of selling, um, which feels very different. And even in, as percentage wise is very different than the last uh, cycle. Cause the last cycle, the biggest drop you had was 38%. And now we've had one that was over 50. Is that the derivatives? I, I mean, I don't know the full data, but it seems like it's a big factor because you, you hear of people who've got liquidated, probably everybody knows somebody who's had a over long position or like multiple positions, some of them liquidated. And that's typically it, right? They were holding and trying to increase their Bitcoin returns. And of course, since you know people have put on a long and got away with it, 
you know, without liquidation when the price was $10,000 are probably looking pretty good even today, right? And so there are some people who put these positions on and leave them for a long time, you know, hope to catch a wave, you know, price doubling. That gives them a lot of insulation where they can put a, a stop loss, which, which is still in the money somewhere in the market. So I think it's in terms of how this um, works going forwards, I think that it's educational, like in a painful way, obviously, for many people, but they won't, they won't do that again, right? Or they'll start more cautiously. If they are using leverage, they'll use less of it, or they'll put stop losses, or paradoxically, maybe they will make higher leverage bets, but smaller ones that they can afford to liquidate. I mean, if you, if you put on a 10X and it falls 10%, it's gone, right? It's mm-hmm. liquidated. So at least then, you know, I think professional traders in, let's say, Forex, leverage Forex, Forex trading, things like that, they're, they're going to you know, look at the news flow, make predictions, hope to be right, maybe 60% of the time and make small bets, right? Lots of them. And so I think one of the mistakes is that people made large bets that became larger than they anticipated because this quadratic effect, which people don't think about because when there are small movements, it's more linear. It gets gets more quadratic um, as you get further down or further up. So yeah, I think that there are people who stepped in to buy coins, certainly when the market hit the 31,000, around about there. Oh, I happened to be looking at the market when that was going on and it was it was insane. You know, the price was jumping one or 2,000 every few seconds, just jumping around as, as people were getting liquidated and other people were buying. Um, so I think there's got, to, there's got to be some coin transfer. You know, every, every sale has a matching buyer and some of those buyers won't be as leveraged or won't be leveraged or will be start better or become better at managing risk and having stop losses and smaller position sizes and things like that. So plan B, my question for you is just when you're looking at the on-chain data, um, what, what kind of indicators are you seeing right now as far as, uh, you know, where we might be heading moving forward, what we just saw, kind of give us a, a snapshot of how you're reading the data right now. Sure. Uh, to go to go one step back to your, your previous question about derivatives markets and did yeah, it change the yeah. price? I don't, I don't. I honestly don't think it did change that much in the price dynamics. Because um, if I if I look at, um, for example, uh, April 2013, the price in the 2013 bull run uh, hit $140, $140 at that time. Mm-hmm. And then four months later, in July 2013, it hit at the lowest point, 63 Mm-hmm. 140 to 63 so it went down more than 50 percent uh, so we we also had that in the early days uh, those big big price uh, jumps and maybe derivatives markets uh, uh, exaggerated and and and, and uh, increased those swings I don't know it it, it, it looks to, it just looking at the data it looks like the same thing but um so, so uh, nothing abnormal there. If I look at, at the on-chain, the on-chain data is very interesting at the moment. And there's lots of people doing it, like uh, Clement, uh, Willy Wu, and the Glassnode guys. It's, it's really a growing space, and it's very interesting. Uh, what I see is um, two things, basically. First of all, uh, we don't see a lot of 
volume, a lot of transactions that are normally there at bull markets, at the end of the bull market, like the uh, 2017 and 2013 bull market. And without being specific about what kind of transactions those are, but just picture the volume, some volume of transactions is just not at that at that level. Uh, we're, we're about halfway, so that gives me an indication that we're we're not seeing we're, we're not in the upper part of the bull market yet. Uh, more like halfway, and that and then if we look at the uh, the the spend the, the 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 coins that are spent on on chain. Um, and 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 of course we know all uh, you know the the, the complete UTXO set is there uh, to be analyzed for us. Uh, so we know every UTXO when it was created, what the price was at the moment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know how much is sold or bought, but especially sold with a loss, and and how much is sold uh, at a profit. And this month was uh, the first month in 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 well quite some time that the net effect of all the UTXOs that were sold uh, is a loss, a big loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, That was not present in 2017. There were no loss months in 2017, but there was a big loss month in 2013. Mm-hmm. So the plateau and, the, and the, the jump from 140 to 64 that I just described, in, in that period, that, in that same period, a lot of coins were, or UTXOs were sold at a loss on chain. Mm-hmm. So um, that leads me to, to the conclusion uh, that either we are halfway, sort of like 2013, and and the biggest jump is still to come, because in 2013 it it jumped all the way from 62 to a thousand, right, or even 1100, even, mm-hmm. or this was it, this was the bull run. Uh, we're now entering more months of selling at a loss and uh and and that will be well the end of stock to flow model uh, for one but uh then we <laughs> will have to wait till till another to another bull market which probably would be, would be there uh, after the next halving but i guess you know which which scenario i prefer i i don't believe at all that we're uh that that 60,000 was the top and that this was the bull market because I think we're in a uh, 2013 kind of scenario and uh, the best is yet to come. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood 
a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I wonder if the asymmetry of buying power is part of it. So... Because the market is generally very net long and people don't like to be net short Bitcoin, um, the sort of buying power left on platforms is you know, there's not that much reserve dollars to buy coins and buying coins using leverage is itself risky. So it makes, you know, un- unlike, um, and, and, and people who are interested in Bitcoin tend to end up very exposed. They don't, they don't have cash reserves because they'd sooner redenominate in Bitcoin. So you don't have that kind of market maker uh, sort of value investor phenomena where there are, let's say, mutual funds and so on that are looking at analyst reports and buying undervalued stocks that they think have long-term value. Um, so you do have s- some new parts of that, which is the institutional investors coming in and um you know you would expect them to be less phased and more long-term looking to be accumulating at this point but that, that remains to be seen i guess and 
otherwise i just think that you know generally some people use leverage to buy lower down so that the leverage hasn't gone away right it's just shrunk so probably some of that bought the 30,000 35,000 range um on lower leverage or something so i assume that it will you know now now that some of that risk has been moved from the system and coins transferred hands that things will you know gradually get more solid and uh pullbacks less rare as more rare yeah i i completely agree with that i if if we look at the last couple of months it, it was basically elon musk and tesla uh buying uh, bitcoin and then a lot of people um uh, copied that behavior they, they they also thought well if alan is doing it and tesla is doing it then well we we go in as well and then alan quit and 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 did the energy foot thing and and he quit and then those people uh, um yeah stepped off the train again so i guess the whole reason to buy uh bitcoin because alan musk did it or that was some kind of sign that other companies would 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 buy and follow uh, tesla as well that story uh, came up and went down. We left that behind us. And now I totally agree with you that the army of holders that held through this event, again, this foot, energy foot Tesla event, uh, and held through so much more of these events, uh, they will be the strong base of the next uh, leg up uh, because they don't sell. They don't even, like yourself, uh, don't count in dollars anymore. They want to have more Bitcoins. Uh, so they make use of this dip like a real value investor. And they uh, say, thank you very much, uh, Elon Musk and Elon Musk uh, copycats. Uh, we're here for a long run and not for a quick buck in uh, one or two months. So yeah, it's very Bitcoin for, for sure is stronger now than it was four months ago. Elon apparently didn't actually sell the coins or at least the ones that are on the balance sheet of Tesla, I guess, right? Because it's a public market company. He he commented it didn't sell. So, uh, but I th I'm not sure that institutional buying is, you know, people form opinions based on little snippets of news, and the media likes to amplify negative news or make it up or recycle it. And you know, there's a lot of confusion, like the the assumptions that people make about news are wrong. And for example, the mining thing that we talked about last time that, you know, that the hash rate was down a large amount and it wasn't, they were looking at, you know, the effective extrapolated there and that that would hurt miners outside China and it actually helped them. And so, you know, the inferences are very confused and wrong. So if people trade them, that's kind of giving value to people who understand the market structure better. And, um, I think that you know negative news sells. So news organizations will recycle old information that isn't even new. Or you know, China is a good one for it because of the language barrier. Sometimes people you know mistranslate things or amplify things, and then there's nobody really stepping up to explain what really happened. Um, but the institutional buyers, I th I think they are still there coming because it takes people. People may be not familiar with how long it takes these entities to uh, get to a position. And they've got to do lots of um, tax planning, legal planning, and get external advice from you know, auditors and regulatory lawyers. 
and figure out how best to hold it. And maybe that involves, you know, board approvals for a public market company. And, um, you know, in the, in the case of even MicroStrategy, right, he went to quite elaborate lengths to uh, protect the company from adverse uh, reactions by offering a share buyback for anybody who didn't, who didn't, you know, like the strategy. So all those things take, you know, months and months, maybe six months or a year to set up. And if you, if you recall going back a while ago, MicroStrategy organized um, an institutional buyers kind of private conference or something. And there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of company participants. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, certainly companies can turn out to have weekends too, but they're at least operated on a five-year time horizon plus. And the other thing that's kind of surprising about time horizons is it, if you would buy, you know, uh, stock market, just stocks, like a stock index or individual stocks in sectors, any financial advisor uh, would tell you, well, don't buy that if you need the cash for, you know, three years plus, right? You, sh you should expect to hold it because the market has cycles, it can be volatile. It does well in the long term, but in the short term, it may go down. That kind of uh, uh, advice that people give out, and yet it's Bitcoin and they're selling, you know, barely a month after they bought it. So I don't know what they were thinking, really. I mean, this, in, in the Bitcoin space, it's, it's sort of similar to the stock situation in having cycles, but just, just much, you know, a higher sharp ratio and a volatility to go with it. So if you if you adapt for that, you know, divide everything, divide the sharp ratio by 10, volatility by 10, it's something very similar, right? So I don't see, you know, people should catch up and learn that. It just takes a while to adapt to, you know, this kind of volatility and understand that that actually is something that is storing value for you over the long term, right? It seems, I guess it seems counterintuitive. I can confirm the uh, institutional buying behavior, by the way. It, it takes ages before you get past compliance and accounting and, and legal, et cetera. And then uh, for sure, they will, when they, when they did the whole process uh, and they made the decision, the strategic decision to acquire a, uh, an exposure, they, um, they will do it. So they will, not, they will not be influenced by news or um, something else, FUD or, or whatever. They just made the decision and, and, and execute the decision. And that will take probably also days or, or, or at least weeks to acquire a big, uh, say, billion-dollar chunk of uh, Bitcoin without moving the price. And that, by the way, is also a very interesting fact that uh, if, for example, MicroStrategy bought, like, what is, what is it, $2 billion? Um, and, and he was very detailed, Michael Saylor, about how he did it. He acquired that position without moving the price very much, and it can be done, right? By by buying very small parts over a long period of time, so you don't influence the price. The price action that we saw last month, the and especially this month, the down action was always in the Chinese in in the illiquid hours of the market. So it was deliberately destructive. It was it was not sold by someone who wanted the most uh, dollars for, 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 for his Bitcoin. It was um, uh, sold at illiquid times in the market uh, with 
far too big of a chunk to 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 get a good price. So it was destructive selling, and that is very very interesting uh, for me. Uh, and and actually, if you look at the price uh, charts, for example, the daily chart for the the last couple of months, you see that all this destructive selling. All this selling, which, by the way, took place at the end of each month, uh, strangely, all that selling was bought within one or two weeks. So it, it was like a V-shaped uh, recovery within two weeks. And that also is, for me, a bit of a hallmark of institutional selling, um, that they scare people out of their positions, even Institutional, institutional selling or buying? Buying, sorry. Yeah, buying, buying. Uh, because they, uh, together with their OTC desks, scare uh, retail and, and, and normal people uh, out of their positions, even liquidate people out of their positions, and then buy the scraps uh, in, in the weeks after it. And, and that is especially effective if you sell and push the price down in illiquid hours and then buy the stuff at liquid hours in small chunks so and that is basically what i'm seeing last uh, since january so so last five months and that's very very bullish in my eyes so i i wouldn't be surprised if this lag down in may would be bought up in june again uh, and especially since it's now the beginning of the month again, <laughs> which is a pattern that has been present for five months already. Very interesting. Maybe, maybe random, but I, yeah. Are they going see- to do that strategy? Would they have to do it uh, when they're buying? Would they have to buy in the derivatives market long in order to offset the selling that they're having to do in the underlying? No, no, no. no. They just buy spot, but small amounts, like, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Michael Saylor explained. So a lot of so bots. Okay, I'm with you now. So they're leveraging the the lack of liquidity to drive the price lower in that short term, and then they're trying to scoop up in the right. morning hours on in New York or whatever. Right. I got you. Right, and they and they combine the pushing down of price with uh, uh, big orders in illiquid times. They combine it with FUD, so news stories that the the the, the mainstream media will will talk about uh, the day after and. You know, this is not conspiracy. I've seen it with my own eyes. Whenever a, a large party buys something or wants to buy something, there's a whole playbook of how they're going to uh, buy it, how, how they're going to, to acquire that, that, that exposure. And it, it goes with a communication plan. So the FUD, uh, if, if you buy something, you want to buy it cheap. So you want to have FUD in the market when you buy it. And, and that's, that's, I think, nothing secret or... I saw a lot of people talk about this, uh, especially the last couple of uh, weeks. Uh, people from the scene, uh, they recognize it. I mean, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Sachs, everybody is doing this. You, that's why they, you, you buy those banks, right? That's what they do. They create FUD and they create a, uh, they acquire the position for you. And I guess the OTC desks, the Bitcoin OTC desks are uh, very professional ex-investment uh, bank uh, bankers that know the, the play. Hey, Adam, I wanted to ask you about some of the information about China mining and how a lot of it's migrating uh, here to North America. What do you, what kind of inside info do you have on some of the mining rigs leaving China? Um, 
I, I know the China news story that came out was absolutely recycled FUD, but is is there anything that is happening over there that's suggesting that uh, the Chinese are, are putting a kibosh on a lot of this stuff? I mean, it's it's happened multiple times before, so it's always difficult to take it seriously, you know, because we'll have the China bans Bitcoin or China bans mining or China bans... I don't know, exchange trading or something. And um, I think maybe some of it is context related. So people look at it from the point of view of the um, regulatory environment they're used to living in. And they think, well, you know, if, if our regulator said that, we would have to do something, take it seriously. But in China, the sort of um, regulations are handled differently. So effectively, you know, you need permissions to do many things, but you can't get the permissions. So everything is kind of in the gray zone. And then they make announcements to kind of soft tune what's happening on the ground. So if they think that something is getting, getting too big that they'd sooner shrink, they'll say something negative. And so generally speaking, things just flow around it like water, like they will, you know. So there's definitely a bit of news about people trying to look for um, – hosting and power outside of China. I recall in a previous version of this a few years ago, the story was that some miners had secured power in Russia and driven equipment and trucks over the Russian Russian border and like set up shop over the border. But it seems like nevertheless a lot of um, a lot of hash rate continues in China. So I wouldn't be surprised if that plays out this time. Um, some some may relocate and generally there has been a bit of a trend towards North America and Europe um, over the last few years it, with, without, you know, much, much fanfare, just because I guess institutional investors doing mining are a bit more savvy about geopolitical risk. So they will say, you know, okay, that 70 cents per kilowatt hour, but under what conditions, right? You know, are you using air filtration? What's, what's the electrical safety like? You know, what, what's the chances that the mine will catch fire? And what's the political overhang? You know, are you, you know, is there a chance that the local or national regulator could change the power price without notice or ask you to leave and, you know, ask you to stop mining in its jurisdiction? So the, those sort of more sophisticated investors look at the non-pure price factor, right? So they look at the quality and the political risk. And so that, I think, drove, you know, organically meant that hash rate grew faster outside of China. So that's changed the balance a bit. And there does seem to be, you know, people looking to move equipment. But I don't, I don't know how much, you know, spare capacity is just kicking around. You know, somebody says they want, you know, tens of pair hash of, uh, or hundreds, even exa hash of miners to move. Uh, you know, people are building just in time because it's capital intensive. So it, it, it can't move that quickly. It takes time to build infrastructure. And they would be talking about, you know, moving it within a few months. So I guess between the lines, it won't actually move instantly. We'll, see, we'll, we'll certainly get a, a view on it, right? If, if you look at the hash rate and if it goes down and stays down, that's because people can neither mine it or move it, relocate it fast enough. So we'll see how it plays out. But it doesn't matter, you know. I mean, I guess they look the point because people hear this and they sound, they sound alarming. But I mean, ultimately, 
you know, Bitcoin doesn't care, sounds cast, but it really doesn't, you know, the difficulty will go down, money will become more profitable for people outside of the jurisdiction that's affected. And, you know, there was already a shortage of miners. So if some of it's sold, you know, that alleviates some of that shortage because it's difficult to buy used equipment because you don't know how it's been treated, right? If it's been air filtered or overheated, overclocked, et cetera. So that's, that's tricky. Speaking of another topic that I don't think Bitcoin cares, <laughs> let's talk about the energy uh, discussion because, I mean, this is getting a lot of uh, attention in the media. I'm just kind of curious to hear both of your thoughts on it and kind of where you stand. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, there is, I mean, people are not so familiar with the energy sector in general, but the you know the total amount of power in the world that is consumed by bitcoin is quite small and bitcoin miners tend to want cheaper power and so that tends to be renewable just because there's no you know extraction refining and transport costs for the fossil fuels that that are the alternative and so and the other thing that really favors that kind of green or renewable energy for mining is that it's very location independent. So for general power infrastructure, it's going to be around population centers, around you know heavy industries, and Bitcoin can be anywhere, right? So that's partly how it ended up being in these remote areas of China, because due to the efficiencies of central planning, they massively built out hydro dams where there are no humans and no industry. And so they were just sitting there with the water pouring downstream, right? Because there was nowhere, you, could, you can't just generate electricity and not use it. You have to send it somewhere. So they, they, they were just underused massively. So, you know, um, and people, people are engaging in extremely bad data science when they throw out metrics. You know, they'll take the, uh, the amount of hash rate that they estimate is from a country using crude methods, and then they'll multiply it by that whole country's average uh, source of energy even though it's predominantly green because it's cheaper and unused um so they'll just throw out bad data another interesting data point which we know firsthand is in the quebec province of canada uh, which we have a, a data center in montreal in the quebec province there's 37 gigawatts of hydropower most of which is unused and so um you know, that one province in one country could fully power the Bitcoin network. Like that, that's a multiple of the entire Bitcoin network. So just a bit of context. Another, another thing about power is there's an enormous amount of wastage. So, you know, power that doesn't end up getting used. Um, power stations take a time, like a delay to power up and power down in response to demand. The excess is just, you know, people are paid negative energy rates to get rid of the excess power because they can't balance it fast enough. So in aggregate, it's a very inefficient thing and improving over time as people get, you know, more renewables and nuclear actually, um, power infrastructure online. So I, I generally view that Bitcoin is actually a net positive for development of green infrastructure because it gives a, a steady base load that can be turned off on demand which is which is excellent for funding infrastructure like projects because 
you know, they have to make it, I mean, you know, people have a political world, so has the green power in the world, but you have to convert that into finance, right? Somebody has to come up with billions of dollars to build new dams and so on. And those are done using project financing. And the project financing wants a business case to say, well, okay, we'll finance this billion dollar dam, but how are you going to you know, pay it back? And if the way they're going to pay it back is heavy industry and there's no industry and there's no population there, they're going to say no. But if you have you know, a long-term contract for uh, mining, Bitcoin mining, and that can you know, provide, that can supplement or subsidize the infrastructure and then, you know, the industrial and residential demand is variable. You know, you get a heat wave and the power use goes up. And that's what happened in Texas earlier this year. They had like kind of rolling blackouts because I guess there was a heat wave and everybody turned up their air conditioners and overloaded the grid. And so, you know, if, if you saw more Bitcoin funded grid infrastructure in Texas, you know, residential prices are usually much higher than Bitcoin prices. So it would just, people would turn off, you know, some percentage of the Bitcoin mining and there'd be no power blackouts. So I think that's that's the future. The other, the other thing is that in my opinion, you know, civilization has followed a long arc of uh, becoming, it's, it's basically driven by energy, right? So I think the future ultimately will involve more infrastructure. There's this uh, kind of, a metric called the Kardashev type one metric, which is some, some kind of, you know, civilization metric, which we haven't reached yet, which is, you know, extracting uh, a decent proportion of the energy that, that lands on the planet via solar radiation and other sources. Um, and, you know, there's an enormous amount of untapped, even, you know, even just not built, but even use of existing, you know, as the, as the Quebec province case shows. So, and, and actually, the Quebec province is an interesting one because there there is an interest from miners to mine in that province, but politics got in the way. So actually, you know, sometimes politicians become active in proposing a social positive social agenda, but often they get in the way. They're sort of gritting the gears and they prevent industry from solving problems. And this this is one of them, right? So certainly, we we as a company were intending to expand in that region, but ended up not, not being able to because the politicians kind of, um, you know, it was an election year and they made a mess of it, basically. Yeah, well, it, I, I'm not an energy uh, expert, but it, it reminds me very much about um, the energy foot that was used in the, uh, against the internet back in the day, 20 years ago. There was a lot of energy foot about the internet and how much uh, coal and, 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 and carbon dioxide it would use, et cetera. But it's it's like today the people that use that that energy foot are mostly people that don't understand or don't see any value in Bitcoin at all. So so any energy that is used on Bitcoin uh, is too much, and um, they they just don't see the 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 added value on the other side. And I think that's where the the biggest problem is. Um, but the energy foot currently. Uh, that it's used against Bitcoin is 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 a bit dangerous, I think, because um, it 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 very quickly leads into the discussion that that we should go from proof of work to proof of stake, and that is a very dangerous, well, attack vector 
uh, that's that's how I see it because proof of work is essential. It's it's in the, in the, in Bitcoin. It's it's one of the accent, uh, essential ingredients, and um, everybody who, who understands Bitcoin knows that. Um, and uh, but but if you don't, if you, I mean, most people cannot even read the 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 white paper. Um, so th- those people are very. Um, yeah, vulnerable for falling uh, for this 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 fud and 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 also the altcoin fud uh, that that there's coins that are green and that use proof of stake instead of proof of work. So that the whole proof of work proof of stake thing is a nasty side effect of that. And I, I guess we're not done with the uh, energy fud discussion because it will be kept alive. Explain real fast for people in your, from your point of view, why the proof of work versus pu- proof of stake is so important. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that very quickly because Adam Beck can do, can do this <laughs> 10 times better than I, of course, <laughs> but me as a ordinary investor and, and not a programmer nor a cryptographer. Um, I understand that Bitcoin, the peer-to-peer network, um, needs something um, to, to, to make sure that every peer-to-peer decentralized node, like my, my own node, um, knows which which block it, it should add to the it can add to the to the database because we have a synchronized database peer-to-peer, but uh, everybody can can shoot in um, blocks and transactions. But how do I know that it's a right block without a central party like a bank or a server or or, or some company like like with Ethereum or, or, or Ripple? How do I know the the block that I got fed is is okay and I can add it to my my blockchain? And that's the proof of work, the hash uh, that is valid and and also has a correct number of uh, leading zeros. Um, so I, and proof of stake doesn't have that. You cannot validate uh, the block and add the block to your blockchain just by getting the block. You you have to have additional information from um, validator nodes or well so, some kind of server. The, the the biggest stakeholders proof of stake that tell you okay this one is 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 correct and this this one is not. So yeah. I, that, that, that's how I see. It. I see it as an essential part of Bitcoin, and without it, I couldn't. I couldn't build my blockchain peer to peer. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, in some ways, I find the argument to be more economic than technical, um, which is that um, there's a, it. It may be a sort of fundamental need for hard money to have a cost of production. Things which don't have a cost of production end up being politically sought after. And then, um, you know, resources are expended currying political favor. So basically the Cantillon effects, bribery, corruption, wars, and lobbying. So all, all of those things can consume resources too, but in an in a ugly, unproductive way. So... You know, if, if a Bitcoin is valued at 30,000, 50,000, whatever the value is, then people can economically spend up to that marginal value in chasing, you know, receiving an additional coin. So they will spend it on equipment and power infrastructure and electricity. And if, if it were just handed out to 
you know, a federation. I mean, I think of the proof of stake as basically a federation, you know, it's just a group of businesses or something, which is, which is an okay structure, but you don't really need a stake. And I think stake makes it worse because then it's vulnerable to somebody amassing more money and gaining more influence and control over the uh, allocation of new money that enters the system. So it ends, it ends up sort of looking similar to the current system, either the fiat system with central banks and quantitative easing, all this kind of stuff. And um, I think the you know, that, that's how you end up with these very unpredictable supply curves for various coins. So I think monetary economists will tend to view predictability as an important factor, like that the supply curve is very predictable. In the case of gold, it's it's uh, reactive to price. You know, people will ramp up production if the price is high in Bitcoin. That, that doesn't happen because of difficulty adjustment. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of fundamental. Well, the other thing is it doesn't, incrementally it costs less because coins were mined faster at the beginning when the price was low. And that, that factor is, is continuing, you know, due to the stock to flow uh, ratio that the number of new coins per halving is shrinking. Um, so, you know, ultimately when most of the coins are in circulation, it wouldn't have cost a very big portion of the um, value to extract them. And I think, you know, people don't, curiously, people don't bemoan gold production costs very much, but that's, uh, you know, a very industrial process in itself. Um, and yeah, is, you know, the value of having hard money is, is very useful for society. And the, the other thing is, I think that Bitcoin as a savings technology has pushed people towards paying more attention to saving who would otherwise be inclined to spend. Many people are sort of very consumerist, right? They spend plus or minus everything they receive, they spend or they take credit and then they spend. And so some societies are heavier on saving where they'll save 90% of their income. Others are, you know, spend 90% of their income. And so Bitcoin tends to push people more towards saving because they can, in a more, um, in a much stronger sense than with compound investing, in you know bonds or stock markets, they can see that the saving will have a higher value later. So this uh, time preference argument, and so the argument there is, if you know money comes from somewhere, so the money spent on buying Bitcoin and indirectly on Bitcoin mining, in the alternative would have gone in buying, you know, consumer goods that have a lot uh, don't last very long and end up in landfills, and so you know. The industrial production cost of all those goods that filled up landfills, and now, you know, that part of the, you know, to the extent that Bitcoiners make up part of the world's economy, the world has become less throwaway consumerist and filling up landfill. And you know, many many consumer goods are made from petrochemicals, plastics, and industrial processes, and so on. So, I think for that reason, also Bitcoin is probably already a net positive just just from that factor. Adam, I've tried to make the argument that when you look at the Lightning Network, it's automatically providing a proof of stake uh, type system, but with the where where it's a little bit different is anybody can run a full node, 
And you don't have to actually stake coins in order to provide a node into that network of the consensus that's happening on the Lightning Network. That's where it's a little bit different than call it Ethereum's proof of stake kind of model. So you get the the added energy benefits or the reduction of energy uh, you know, expense in order to confirm uh, transactions between individuals that, that really don't need the level of security that you have on the layer one, but you're, you're getting it at a significant reduction in energy. And I think when we would warp ourselves 10, 15, 20 years into the future, and you look at where most of your transactions are going to be occurring, I, I would suspect a significant portion of the transactions are going to be actually conducted on the lightning network and not on chain. Only your large substantial transactions would be on chain. So are we effectively getting proof of stake in a way that it doesn't come with the uh, setbacks that are associated with proof of stake by having the Lightning Network? Well, I mean, certainly Bitcoin layer twos don't, uh, no, they don't produce coins, right? They are just layer twos. Uh, So I, I saw the, Somebody from, uh, I think it was PayPal, commented the difference between, in, in the Elon's uh, thread, you know, they came out and said, well, you know, the current uh, chief architect at PayPal or something said, well, at PayPal, we know the difference between uh, settlement networks and payment networks. <laughs> so um, I think you, you could make that argument for Bitcoin that, you know, the different layers are not, resulting in new coins being created. I think another um, confusion, because the media likes to sensationalize, is the the cost per transaction, which is actually yes. close to zero in effect, like, you know, an empty block. Okay, the miners don't get the transaction fees, but, you know, most of the, the value is actually the freshly mined coins and people have a choice of layer twos. So if they are paying for layer one transactions, it's because they they find them sufficiently valuable, right? That they want to do cold storage or um, they want to do a transaction which is harder to censor. And, and the Bitcoin main chain has you know, fundamental advantages. So they're, they're paying for something they value, but incrementally, you know, if a block is got one more or less transaction in it, it doesn't change the cost of mining it, right? Um, so, you know, at least for the midterm, the idea that it costs so much, you know, dollars or kilowatts to mine it, to, to do a transaction is not really a usable metric because the blocks will get produced anyway. Some portion of them are actually empty for technical reasons. And, as you were alluding to, the layer twos have a massive multiplying effect. And in, in a way, you know, there are kind of informal IOU type of transaction systems, i.e. the trading inside exchanges. I mean, there are coins changing hands very rapidly at a massive multiple of what happens on chain. And even credit arrangements between exchanges and institutional traders and so on. Um, means that there are coins moving around that don't reflect on the chain. So those those you have a trust element, but you know the layer twos like Lightning and Liquid um, improve that you know to to not single trust. I 
I think that's where my frustration comes with a lot of the energy articles and the FUD that's out there is they're looking at the amount of transactions that are happening on layer one. They're saying to to for this to become a global transaction layer, this is how many transactions would have to happen globally. And when we look at how much you know that would cost on layer one, the number is this high, which is you know all the countries in, on the planet uh, times ten of their uh, of their current energy levels. And and I'm just like rolling my eyes, and I'm saying these people have no technical understanding of what's being built on top of this, which is going to handle that throughput, which is going to be a majority of of the transactions. And then uh, when you do look at what will happen on chain and the the cost of that, I think it's I think it's going to be you know not anything near what these projections of these energy articles are saying because they just don't understand what's being constructed from a technical standpoint on top of the layer one. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm really uh, smirking over here for the, for the audience we won't be able to see, but you know the level of understanding is like childlike and just ridiculous. I mean, the. Uh, you know, they'll make arguments that basically misunderstand supply and demand or assume that you scale networks by, you know, saturating the internet with, you know, microtransactions and like no network ever was built like this, you know. I mean, even the Starlink satellite network is not a broadcast network, right? It's It's got lots of routing within it, many, many downlinks, thousands of laser links between satellites and if you converted the whole network into a single broadcast massive wi-fi hub it's you know it's transaction throughput i mean it's you know it's kind of data throughput it's latency it's you know uh efficiency in terms of dropping data because too many devices are trying to talk at the same time would just fail i mean it would be thousands of times less efficient just fundamentally so and it's not you know people will throw out the argument well you know Computers get faster each year and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, the speed of light doesn't get faster each year. And at no point does it make sense to throw money away. So, you know, people are using more bandwidth every year too for high fidelity video streaming, real-time interactive things. So, you know, the demand for bandwidth and storage is insatiable. So at any point, you know, switch networks will win. And I don't understand why people, why anybody with, you know, any kind of basic understanding you know, how things work would imagine that Bitcoin should be different. I mean, you know, it's, it's just uh, shocking how people get <laughs> such strong opinions about, you know, very basic facts about networks, like any, any network, the internet, like Starlink, GSM networks, radio networks, they all have layers and routing. Do you think that the the adoption or the incentive structure for lightning adoption will go up when the price of Bitcoin uh, gets a lot higher and your 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 person who's trying to have a small coffee sized level transaction is just has no incentive whatsoever to settle that on chain because of the cost of the fees that would be associated with it, which would force them down into lightning. So like I had a conversation with Will Reeves over at uh, fold and I'm, I'm just looking at what he's doing. And uh, so he has all these people, various levels of payments in Bitcoin rewards. And like, I'm thinking, 
you know, if he's trying to to send all those out via on chain layer one transactions, like the fees associated with that are tremendous. They're huge. And, um, you know, as a person who has rewards with him, if I could take those rewards over lightning, I absolutely would because a, I could do it immediately. And two, he wouldn't assess any type of fee to me in order to, to receive those rewards. And so, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking it seems like the incentive structure isn't necessarily there yet, but give it another three or four years, the incentive structure, the build out lightning for a lot of these payment vendors and uh, people that are you know providing these types of services where people have maybe not a significant amount, but they have a small amount and they don't want to be dealing with fees all the time. Um, it's going to force feed the further lightning adoption. Is that how you see it or, or am I way off basis here? No, I mean, I think that um, like other networks, you end up with different protocols for different applications. So like the internet, you have voice over IP, video streaming, web, and so on. And they're optimized for different use cases. And certainly for retail and micropayment, lightning is just better. I mean, it's making a trade-off, so it's it's not as good for kind of security, hot wallet risk, but for you know other factors like speed of finality is almost instant, the fee structure, scalability is much better, and we're seeing a bit of that with Liquid as well, which is a kind of sidechain type of layer two, so it doesn't involve channels, but in the same way as Lightning, you can move funds in and out of it. That it's, you know, people use technology for what they want to use it for, despite the uh, thought processes of the people who build it. <laughs> and uh, you know, we were certainly thinking the liquid will be interesting for traders because it offers advantages to them. But organically, we're seeing a lot of people use it for uh, just medium-sized payments because it's cheaper and faster and has confidentiality. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it's done as well. I mean, I think there will be more layer twos and the technology will improve over time. There are, there are more being developed, you know, there's the uh, so-called state chain, there are people working on that nowadays. So, um, so Adam, I've never used lightning. I'm kind of curious um, if I have, I think you guys have a wallet called liquid. Is that, uh, or no, I'm sorry. What's the uh, wallet that you, Aqua. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, you have a wallet called Aqua that I know you can put um, liquid assets on. So, Walk a person through, like, if I was going to download this app and I wanted to purchase, um, you know, one of these one of these assets. Talk us through what that process would be like from a user experience. Um, yeah, I mean, the exchanges and payment processes and kind of simple swap services will let you swap Bitcoin for liquid Bitcoin and. Liquid has other assets. It also has US dollar tethers and euros and different different assets. So you would just, I mean, the user experience is very like Bitcoin. You know, you set up a seed, you use QR codes to send and receive. So it's very Bitcoin-like experience. Plus then you have, um, you know, the, the transactions are a bit faster because the blocks are every minute instead of being, you know, random, randomly distributed around a 10 minute mark. And two blocks is actually final for some technical reasons. Um, of course, it has trade-offs, right? As with Lightning, the uh, censorship resistance is not as good. And so I would say, you know, for cold storage, you should 
move funds onto the main chain. And some it seems like some people are doing that. You know, they will they'll sort of do their dollar cost average stacking into liquids, and then you know, once a quarter or once in a while when they build up enough, they'll convert it and put it in cold storage on the main chain. So that's that's another use case. Um, but you're having yeah, to go to an exchange in order to procure these. You're not doing this on the app, right? Uh, well, there's another there's another um, wallet called SiteSwap. It's by a company called SiteSwap Limited, and they have uh, for Android and iOS a smartphone app that lets you swap in app. So you can swap main chain Bitcoin for liquid Bitcoin, and you can swap the other direction, and you can swap dollars, you know, tethers for. Uh, liquid Bitcoin actually in a trustless way, so it's a kind of atomic swap, and so that's that seems to have you know, captured a lot of people's imagination. Uh, they're building up, you know, more uh, user-originated swaps where you can sort of place orders in it and be the provider. So at the moment, they're the they're the middleman, but they are in a trustless way. Um, so you can that kind of thing is is possible too, and you know presents a nicer user experience because you have one app that can, can do both. All right, uh, that's all the questions that I have for you guys. I really appreciate you guys taking time to to do this again. I know the last one that we had, we got a lot of incredible feedback from folks that really kind of enjoying the conversation. So I appreciate your time, uh, both of you guys. Give uh, folks a handoff where they can learn more about you. Um, so on Twitter, it's Adam3US and for the Blockstream related products, it's uh, at Blockstream. Okay. And uh, I'm on, on Twitter under plan B at 100 trillion USD. That's uh, 100 trillion USD. And I have a website. It's planbtc.com. Uh, all the articles and previous interviews are on there. If you're interested in it, uh, please have a look. Hey, so thanks for everybody listening into the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're using. We really appreciate that. And if you have time, leave us a review. So thanks for joining us this week and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.